Section 10 of God and My Neighbour. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Algie Pug. God and My Neighbour by Robert Blatchford. Section 10. The Old Testament. Jehovah, the Adopted Heavenly Father of Christianity. Part 1. In giving the above brief sketch of the known universe, my object was to suggest that the creator of a universe of such scope and grandeur must be a being of vast power and the loftiest dignity. Now, the Christians claim that their God created this universe, not the universe he has described in his own inspired word as creating, but the universe revealed by science, the universe of twenty millions of suns. And the Christians claim that this God is a God of love, a God omnipotent, omnipresent, and eternal. And the Christians claim that this great God, the creator of our wonderful universe, is the God revealed to us in the Bible. Let us then go to the Bible and find out for ourselves whether the God therein revealed is any more like the ideal Christian God than the universe therein revealed is like the universe since discovered by man without the aid of divine inspiration. As for the biblical god Yahweh, or Jehovah, I shall try to show from the Bible itself that he was not all-wise, nor all-powerful, nor omnipresent, that he was not merciful nor just, but that, on the contrary, he was fickle, jealous, dishonourable, immoral, vindictive, barbarous, and cruel neither was he in any sense of the words great nor good but in fact he was a tribal god an idol made by man and as the idol of a savage and ignorant tribe was himself a savage and ignorant monster first then as to my claim that yahweh or jehovah was a tribal god i shall begin by quoting from shall we understand the bible by the reverend t rhonda williams Quote, the theology of the Yahwist is very childish and elementary, though it is not all on the same level. He thinks of God very much as in human form, holding intercourse with men almost as one of themselves. His document begins with Genesis chapter 2 verse 4, and its first portion continues, without break, to the end of chapter 4. This portion contains the story of Eden. Here Yahweh moulds dust into human form and breathes into it, plants a garden, and puts the man in it. Yahweh comes to the man in his sleep and takes part of his body to make a woman, and so skilfully apparently that the man never wakes under the operation. Yahweh walks in the garden like a man in the cool of the day. He even makes coats for Adam and Eve. Further on, the Yahweh has a flood story in which Yahweh repents that he has made man and decides to drown him, saving only one family. When all is over, and Noah sacrifices on his new altar, Yahweh smells a sweet savour, just as a hungry man smells welcome food. When men build the Tower of Babel, Yahweh comes down to see it. He cannot see it from where he is. In Genesis 18, the Yahwist tells the story of three men coming to Abraham's tent. Abraham gives them water to wash their feet, and bread to eat, and Sarah makes cakes for them, and they did eat. Altogether, they seem to have had a nice time. As the story goes on, 
he leaves you to infer that one of these was Yahweh himself. It is Yahweh who describes the story of Jacob wrestling with some mysterious person, who, by inference, is Yahweh. He tells a very strange story in Exodus, chapter 4, verse 24, when Moses was returning into Egypt at Yahweh's own request, Yahweh met him at a lodging place and sought to kill him. In Exodus, chapter 14, verse 15, it is said Yahweh took the wheels off the chariots of the Egyptians. If we wanted to believe that such statements were true at all, we should resort to the device of saying they were figurative. But Yahweh meant them literally. The Yahwist would have no difficulty in thinking of God in this way. The story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah belongs to this same document, in which, you remember, Yahweh says, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it which has come unto me, and if not, I will know. Genesis chapter 18 verse 21 That God was omniscient and omnipresent had never occurred to the Yahwist. Yahweh, like a man, had to go and see if he wanted to know. There is, however, some compensation in the fact that he can move about without difficulty. He can come down and go up. One might say, perhaps, that in Yahweh, though Yahweh cannot be everywhere, he can go almost any place. All this is just like a child's thought. The child, at Christmas, can believe that though Santa Claus cannot be everywhere, he can move about with wonderful facility, and though he is a man, he is rather mysterious. The Yahwist's thought of God represents the childhood stage of the national life. End quote. Later, Mr. Williams writes, quote, All this shows that at one time Yahweh was one of many gods. Other gods were real gods. The Israelites themselves believed, for example, that Chemos was as truly the god of the Moabites as Yahweh was theirs, and they speak of Chemos giving territory to his people to inherit, just as Yahweh had given them territory. Judges, chapter 11, verse 24. Just as the king of Israel would speak of Yahweh, the king of Moab speaks of Chemosh. His god sends him to battle. If he is defeated, the god is angry. If he succeeds, the god is favourable. We have seen that there was a time when the Israelite believed Chemosh to be as real for Moab as Yahweh for himself. You will find the same thing everywhere. The old Assyrian kings said exactly the same thing of the god Assur. Assur sent them to battle, gave defeat or victory, as he thought fit. The history, however, is very obscure up to the time of Samuel, and uncertain for some time after. Samuel organised a Yahweh party. David worshipped Yahweh only, though he regards it as possible to be driven out of Yahweh's inheritance into that of other gods. First book of Samuel, chapter 24, verse 19. Solomon was not exclusively devoted to Yahweh, for he built palaces of worship for other deities as well. End quote. In the chapter on different conceptions of providence in the Bible, Mr. Williams says, quote, I've asked you to read Judges, chapter 3, verses 15 to 30, chapter 4, verses 17 to 24, chapter 5, verses 24 to 31. The first is the story of Ehud getting at Eglon, Israel's enemy, by deceit, and killing him, an act followed by a great slaughter of Moabites. 
The second is a story of Yale pretending to play the friend to Sisera and then murdering him. The third is a eulogy of Yale for doing so as Blessed Above Women in the so-called Song of Deborah. Here, you see, Providence is only concerned with the fortunes of Israel. Any deceit and any cruelty is right which brings success to this people. Providence is not concerned with morality, nor is it concerned with individuals, except as the individual serves or opposes Israel. End quote. In these two chapters, Mr. Williams shows that the early conception of God was a very low one, and that it underwent considerable change. In fact, he says, with great candour and courage, that the early Bible conception of God is one which we cannot now accept. With this I entirely agree. We cannot accept, as the God of creation, this savage idol of an obscure tribe, and we have renounced him and are ashamed of him, not because of any later divine revelation, but because mankind has become too enlightened, too humane, and too honourable to tolerate Jehovah. And yet the Christian religion adopted Jehovah, and called upon its followers to worship and believe him, on pain of torture, or death, or excommunication in this world, and of hellfire in the world to come. It is astounding. But lest the evidence offered by Mr. Williams should not be considered sufficient, I shall quote from another very useful book, The Evolution of the Idea of God, by the late Grant Allen. In this book, Mr. Allen clearly traces the origins of the various ideas of God, and we hear of Jehovah again, as a kind of tribal stone idol, carried about in a box or ark. I will quote as fully as space permits. Quote, but Yahweh was an object of portable size, for, omitting for the present the descriptions in the Pentateuch, which seem likely to be of later date and not too trustworthy, through their strenuous Jehovistic editing, he was carried from Shiloh in his ark to the front during the great battle with the Philistines at Ebenezer. And the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A god is come into the camp. When the Philistines captured the ark, the rival god, Dagon, fell down and broke in pieces. So Hebrew legend declared, before the face of Yahweh. After the Philistines restored the sacred object, it rested for a time at Kiriath Yerim, till David, on the capture of Jerusalem before the Jezebites, went down to that place to bring up from thence the Ark of the God. And as it went, on a new cart, they played before Yahweh on all manner of instruments and David himself danced before Yahweh. The children of Israel, in early times, carried about with them a tribal god, Yahweh, whose presence in their midst was intimately connected with a certain ark or chest containing a stone object or objects. This chest was readily portable, and could be carried to the front in case of warfare. They did not know the origin of the object in the ark with certainty, but they regarded it emphatically as Yahweh their god, which led them out of the land of Egypt. I do not see, therefore, how we can easily avoid the obvious inference that Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, who later became sublimated and etherealized into the God of Christianity, was, in his origin, nothing more or less than the ancestral sacred stone of the people of Israel, however sculptured, and perhaps, in the very last resort of all, the unhewn monumental pillar of some early Semitic sheikh or chieftain. End quote.
It was indeed, as the Reverend C. E. Beebe says, in his book Creed and Life, a sad mistake of St. Augustine to tack this tribal fetish in his box onto the Christian religion as the All-Father and Creator of the Universe. For Jehovah was a savage war-god, and as such was impotent to save the tribe who worshipped him. But let us look further into the accounts of this original God of the Christians, and see how he comported himself, and let us put our examples under separate heads thus. Jehovah's Anger Yahweh's bad temper is constantly displayed in the Bible. Yahweh made a man whom he supposed to be perfect. When the man turned bad on his hands, Yahweh was angry and cursed him and his seed for thousands of years. This vindictive act is accepted by the Apostle Paul as a natural thing for a God of love to do. Yahweh, who had already cursed all the seed of Adam, was so angry about man's sin in the time of Noah that he decided to drown all the people on the earth except Noah's family, and not only that, but to drown nearly all the innocent animals as well. When the children of Israel, who had eaten nothing but manna for forty years, asked Yahweh for a change of diet, Yahweh lost his temper again, and sent amongst them fiery serpents, so that much people of Israel died. But still the desire for other food remained, and the Jews wept for meat. Then the Lord ordered Moses to speak to the people as follows. Quote, the Lord will give you flesh, and ye shall eat. You shall not eat one day, nor two days, nor five days, neither ten days, nor twenty days, but even a whole month, until it come out of your nostrils, and it be loathsome unto you. Because that you have despised the Lord, which is among you, and have wept before him, saying, Why came we forth out of Egypt? End quote. Then Yahweh sent immense numbers of quails, and the people ate them, and the anger of the angry God came upon them in the act, and smote them with a very great plague. One more instance out of many. In the first book of Samuel, we are told that on the return of Yahweh in his ark, from the custody of the Philistines, some men of Beth Shemesh looked into the ark. This made Yahweh so angry that he smote the people, and slew more than fifty thousand of them. THE INJUSTICE OF JEHOVAH I have already instanced Yahweh's injustice in cursing the seed of Adam for Adam's sin, and in destroying the whole animal creation, except a selected few, because he was angry with mankind. In the book of Samuel, we are told that Yahweh sent three years' famine upon the whole nation because of the sins of Saul, and that his wrath was only appeased by the hanging in cold blood of seven of Saul's sons for the evil committed by their father. In the book of Joshua, it is told how Achan, having stolen some gold, was ordered to be burned, and how Joshua and the Israelites took Achan and his sons and his daughters, and his oxen and his asses, and his sheep, and his tent, and all that he had, and stowed them to death, and burnt them with fire. In the first book of Chronicles, the devil persuades David to take a census of Israel, and again, Yahweh acted in blind wrath and injustice, for he sent a pestilence which slew 70,000 of the people for David's fault, but David he allowed to live. In Samuel we learn how Yahweh, because of an attack upon the Israelites 400 years before the time of speaking, ordered Saul to destroy the Amalekites, man and woman, infant and suckling, 
ox and sheep, camel and ass. And Saul did as he was directed, but because he spared King Agag, the Lord deprived him of the crown and made David king in his stead. The Immorality of Jehovah In the second book of Chronicles, Jehovah gets Ahab, the king of Israel, killed by putting lies into the mouths of the prophets. Quote, and the Lord said, Who shall entice Ahab, king of Israel, that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one spoke, saying after this manner, and another saying after that manner. Then there came out a spirit, and stood before the Lord, and said, I will entice him. And the Lord said unto him, Wherewith? And he said, I will go out, and be a lying spirit in the mouths of all his prophets. And the Lord said, Thou shalt entice him, and thou shalt also prevail. Go out, and do even so. End quote. In Deuteronomy are the following orders as to conduct in war. Quote, when thou goest forth to war against thine enemies, and the Lord thy God hath delivered them into thine hands, and thou hast taken them captive, and seest among the captives a beautiful woman, and hast a desire unto her, that thou wouldest have her to thy wife, then thou shalt bring her home to thine house, and she shall shave her head and pare her nails. And she shall put the raiment of her captivity from off her, and shall remain in thine house, and bewail her father and her mother a full month. And after that thou shalt go in unto her, and be her husband, and she shall be thy wife. And it shall be, if thou have no delight in her, then thou shalt let her go whither she will. But thou shalt not sell her at all for money. Thou shalt not make merchandise of her, because thou hast humbled her. End quote. The children of Israel, having been sent out by Yahweh to punish the Midianites, slew all the males. But Moses was wroth because they had spared the women, and he ordered them to kill all the married women, and to take the single women for themselves. The Lord allowed this brutal act, which included the murder of all the male children, to be consummated. There were 16,000 females spared, of which we are told the Lord's tribute was thirty and two. The Cruelty of Jehovah I could find in the Bible more instances of Yahweh's cruelty and barbarity and lack of mercy than I can find room for. In Deuteronomy, the Lord hardens the heart of Sihon, king of Hezbon, to resist the Jews, and then utterly destroyed the men, women, and little ones of every city. In Leviticus, Yahweh threatens that if the Israelites will not reform, he will walk contrary to them in fury, and they shall eat the flesh of their own sons and daughters. In Deuteronomy is an account of how Bashan was utterly destroyed, men, women and children being slain. In the same book occur the following passages. Quote, when the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land whither thou goest to possess it, and hath cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites, and the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jezebites, seven nations greater and mightier than thou. And when the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee, thou shalt spite them, and utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, or show mercy unto them. End quote. That is from chapter 7. In chapter 20, 
there are further instructions of a like horrible kind. Quote, Thou shalt do unto all the cities which are very far off from thee, which are not of the cities of these nations. But for the cities of these people, which the Lord thy God doth give thee for an inheritance, thou shalt save alive nothing that breatheth. But thou shalt utterly destroy them, namely the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jezebites, as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee. End quote. And here, in a long quotation, is an example of the mercy of Yahweh and his faculty for cursing. Quote, the Lord shall make the pestilence cleave unto thee until he have consumed thee from off the land, whither thou goest to possess it. The Lord shall smite thee with a consumption, and with a fever, and with an inflammation, and with an extreme burning, and with the sword, and with blasting, and with mildew, and they shall pursue thee until thou perish. And thy heaven that is over thy head shall be brass, and the earth that is under thee shall be iron. The Lord shall make the rain of thy land powder and dust. From heaven shall it come down upon thee, until thou be destroyed. The Lord shall cause thee to be smitten before thine enemies. Thou shalt go out one way against them, and flee seven ways before them, and shalt be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth. And thy carcass shall be meat unto all fowls of the air, unto the beasts of the earth, and no man shall fray them away. The Lord will smite thee with the botch of Egypt, and with the emerods, and with the scab, and with the itch, whereof thou canst not be healed. The Lord shall smite thee with madness, and blindness, and astonishment of heart. And he shall besiege thee in all thy gates, until thy high and fenced walls come down, wherein thou trustest, throughout all thy land. And he shall besiege thee in all thy gates throughout all thy land, which the Lord thy God hath given thee. And thou shalt eat the fruits of thine own body, the flesh of thy sons and of thy daughters, which the Lord thy God hath given thee, in the siege, and in the straitness wherewith thine enemies shall distress thee. So that the man that is tender among you, and very delicate, his eyes shall be evil toward his brother, and toward the wife of his bosom, and toward the remnant of his children, which he shall leave. For a fire is kindled in mine anger, and shall burn into the lowest hell, and shall consume the earth with her increase, and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. I will heap mischiefs upon them, I will spend mine arrows upon them. They shall be burnt with hunger, and devoured with burning heat, and with bitter destruction. I will also send the teeth of beasts upon them, with the poison of serpents of the dust. The sword without, and terror within, shall destroy both the young man and the virgin, the suckling also with the man of grey hairs. End quote. I think I have quoted enough to show that what I say of the Jewish God, Jehovah, is based on fact. But I could, if needful, heap proof on proof, for the books of the Old Testament reek with blood and are horrible with atrocities. End of section 10